Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome Project Hope CEO Robbie Torbay and his Emergency Preparedness Director Tom Cotter, who's on the ground in Romania providing medical support for Ukrainian war victims and refugees. Even if the war ends today, our work will be there for a long, long time in terms of rebuilding the healthcare system. Lori Robertson checks in from factcheck.org and we end with a bright idea, improving health and well-being in everyday lives. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. As the war in Ukraine escalates before our eyes, so does the scope of the unfolding humanitarian crisis. Millions of refugees are fleeing into neighboring countries while aid agencies are flocking into the region. One such agency is Project Hope, which has brought aid to disaster areas for more than 60 years. Today, we're joined by its president and CEO, Robbie Torbay, from their headquarters in Washington, D.C. And also by Tom Cotter, Project Hope's Director of Emergency Response and Preparedness. Mr. Cotter is joining us from Bucharest, Romania, where he's overseeing the effort to provide desperately needed medical and humanitarian assistance on the ground. Gentlemen, we welcome you to Conversations on Healthcare. Robbie and Tom, uh, you know, th this war is unfolding in real time for the whole world to see, and the images are devastating. Bomb children's hospitals and maternity wards, entire cities being leveled, and millions of desperate refugees flooding into neighboring countries. Robbie, let's start with you. Project Hope has been delivering medical assistance and humanitarian aid in war zones and disaster areas for decades, but the magnitude of this crisis is being called unprecedented in the war zone and in the mass exodus of refugees. What are your gravest humanitarian concerns as this war escalates? Well, Mark, as you mentioned, this is something that we haven't seen yet, uh, mm -hmm. not in the recent history. Uh, we're talking over 1.5 million that have crossed within two weeks, in addition to probably millions of internally displaced uh, inside Ukraine. We're talking about women and children who are fleeing the conflict. Those are vulnerable people leaving everything behind. The separation of the families is something that, that is of concern as well. But also, in addition to, to that, the health of people that are left behind with hardly any medicines or medical supplies, in addition to those that are fleeing, it's something that is of great concern. And we're talking about both physical health as well as mental health. This is something that we're looking at. This is something of great concern. This is something that we'll have to deal with for a long time. Well, Tom, you're in Romania, and that's one of several countries that have uh, responded to take in upwards of 3 million refugees so far, uh, more people to come and uh, suffering from hunger, from illness and trauma. What kind of infrastructure do you have or are you trying to establish to meet this overwhelming need? This is, um, as Robbie said, this is a crisis that's, that's relatively unprecedented in near history. So a lot of the systems that are absorbing the refugees are being built as they're being run. This is, you know, we like to say this is building the airplane while it's flying in the sky. Um, and the systems will continue to improve. Um, right now, the host countries are doing a lot in terms of making sure that that uh, refugees have access to existing healthcare infrastructure that the, the normal populations of the, the host countries have, as well as making sure that um, incoming refugees are being screened for vaccines, um, including, you know, let's not forget, we're still very much in the middle of a pandemic uh, in various stages. And, and that's still a looming threat um, to make sure that uh, countries like Romania, um, which have been doing quite well on their COVID-19 outbreaks, you know, don't, don't experience a surge. And on the mental health side, this is a particularly difficult um, challenge, I think, for host countries, especially with linguistic and cultural differences. 
um, it, mental health is, is very much reliant on, on what I call the crucible of culture. There's no getting around it. If you are trying to help someone through a crisis, you need to really be able to connect with them at a very human level. Um, and those of us who, who've worked in the field really understand that. With language difficulties and folks not speaking language fluently, that, that can be a challenge. So, you know, the ways around this are, are finding local resources and, and en engaging refugees themselves who are able to be hired and, and can work within this infrastructure to help it adjust um, and, and surge to meet the needs of people coming. Project Hope has a no regret approach to diving headlong into crisis. You say there's a critical window when lives are at stake and the impact can be the greatest. So you jump into the fire, you adapt as you go. Tell us about that approach and how it's been formed. Uh, you know, in, in medicine and, and especially for emergency responders, there's something called the golden hour. When an accident happened, you need to go in immediately. That's your golden hour to save the patient. And we're looking at it the same way. We need to go in when the needs are the highest. I mean, we're going into a situation knowing what we know, but we know there are a lot of things that we do not know much about. Taking a risk, taking a chance, knowing that we're going to learn on the way. And, and it's proven to be very effective. We got on the ground in Ukraine, as well as Romania, Moldova, and Poland in no time. And we started providing medicines, medical supplies, sending the teams in to assess the needs and addressing it. And as Tom mentioned, one thing that is really critical as well is the culture, being culturally appropriate in terms of what we do, learning what works and what doesn't work in every different culture and adapting is something that we do very well and it's critical. Tom, I know that uh, an important element of what you're doing is coordinating with the other uh, aid agencies that are on site. We've uh, seen Doctors Without Borders, UNICEF, the World Food Program. And you've got a particular uh, in Project Hope focus on supporting the medical infrastructure. I'm sure you've played this out in other areas of response before this coordination of your unique contributions. How is that going? Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Well, it is a bit different in every disaster. And I think the scale and scope of this are really pushing the limits of, of how we approach the actual management of a response at this scale. This is four or five countries. And then if you look at refugees that are coming and then moving on towards other, other places in, in Western Europe, um, the, the scale is, is really hard to even define at this point this early on. So, so coordinating is, is really important. Um, it, it happens at a, a local level, it happens at a national level, and it happens at an international level. And making sure that we're tapped into existing infrastructure, I think that's really important. We don't wanna take a system and create a parallel siloed system to what something that already exists. You know, part of what we're doing is, is helping host governments surge to meet the needs. It's not, it's not creating new clinics. It's what can we do to support what already exists so that it can meet the needs. Um, and, and we do that you know, with the host government. We do that with uh, local partners. And who best to address the needs of, of people but people who share their culture. So any way that we can find local partners that then we can support and partner with and help them scale, um, that, that's the best way you know, we think to, to do a, a lot of our work. Um, this is going to be a very long crisis. And so, so finding ways to you know, get everyone at the table and making sure that there are no gaps and there's no overlap as well. We don't want to race, waste resources. So partnering you know, uh, a health NGO like Project Hope um, that does health, um, you know, we want to work with a food NGO, a child protection NGO, um, a water NGO, and making sure that we're providing comprehensive care uh, and nobody's left behind. You know, Robbie, I'm, I'm interested in how you build the supply chain for a situation like this. And we've seen uh, with pandemic supply chains get disrupted. And I, and I wonder if you could just walk us through 
the process from the United States over to uh, Ukraine and, uh, and to the other points of uh, how this gets set up. It was easy, anybody could do it, but it's not. It's a very complicated and demanding process that you've, uh, that you've developed. I mean, supply chain is one of the most critical aspect of any response, right? We can send doctors, we can send nurses, we can send experts, but if we don't have medicines and medical supplies that go with them, there's really not much they could provide in terms of treating a patient. And we, we have developed a very robust uh, supply chain. First of all, I mean, donors in the U.S. are some of the most generous people in the world. They reach out wanting to support, whether by donating uh, resources, uh, funds, or supplies, medicines, medical supplies and equipment. And we have different partnerships with companies, with organizations, with corporations that always reach out to us and, and donate some of their supplies. But also we do some procurement as well in the U.S. and Europe. And as you said, in any emergency, the, the supply chain becomes could become a bottleneck, first of all, because a lot of supplies are going into the region and airports and ports have limited capacity, but also the demand is high and, and sometimes the supply chain is not there to meet that demand. So we tend to diversify in terms of where we get some of those medicines and medical supplies, as long as they're the quality that we want and they have the expiration, uh, the long expiration date uh, that we need. And we send them by air, by sea freight, whatever we can to the ports. We're relying heavily now on buying in Europe as well because of the proximity. We can get them uh, in uh, sooner. But also we have a lot of uh, flights that are going in with medicines and medical supplies from the U.S. And it's something that we manage very closely. We have a team of expert logisticians, and they're the ones that actually you know, handle the cargo from, from the minute it's uh, given to us all the way to the delivery point to Tom and, and his colleagues as well. Well, uh, Tom, I'd like to talk about uh, the millions of refugees uh, who we have seen uh, leave Ukraine and go into other countries. And at the same time, the whole world has been moved by the way people in these countries have opened uh, their homes, their hearts, uh, to bring people uh, into their homes and probably not for a few days. And I wonder, and I don't know if this is outside the scope of what you do, but preparing uh, people who are bringing individuals into their homes who've been traumatized, how are you working with people on the ground uh, to prepare them to help the people to whom they've opened their homes? It's an astonishing thing to watch. The, the outpouring of love and care from communities in literally throwing open their doors and mm -hmm. receiving people. It's, I, I've never seen anything like it in my career to this scale. Um, and it, it, it's really encouraging and it really does matter. It's making a big difference in, in integrating uh, people fleeing violence into new communities. Um, but as you said, there are some considerations that, that need to be uh, forefront of mind. One of which is folks coming with specific needs. You mentioned mental health needs. It's, it's a very delicate thing to receive someone and interact with somebody who's experienced such acute trauma um, at their own home. And there's a, there's a tool called psychological first aid that allows you, allows any lay person who's not a psychologist or a psychiatrist to essentially validate those, those feelings that, that a person might have fleeing violence and, and allows you to, to help them return. Now, most people by and large are not going to need any additional support other than 
some sort of normalcy. We, fi we find this in most disasters. It's, it's not that everyone needs to see a psychiatrist or psychologist, um, and th these trainings can help. So right now, Project Hope is actually working um, with, as I say, local partners in Romania to provide that training for psychological first aid for volunteers working at the border, the people handing out the toys and the food and the, and the, and the water at the border, and also the people who are receiving refugees in their home. The other thing that's really important for folks that are receiving refugees is, is helping them navigate the healthcare system. Um, there, was a, there was a case where someone who uh, had cancer showed up in someone, a, a Romanian person's home who had thrown up at their doors, and they need to help them get appropriate care in the healthcare system in the neighborhoods they're in. Robbie, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the scenario planning that you're doing. We just witnessed uh, an attack close to the Polish border. I, I'm wondering how, how you're thinking about it, contemplating uh, what happens if there's other scenarios happening and how you prepare for what we hope won't be an expanding war, but what, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, let's hope there is no expansion to this war and let's hope that this war ends soon because even if the war ends today, our work will be there for a long, long time in terms of rebuilding the healthcare system. Uh, but you're right on point, Mark. I mean, we do work with contingencies. The situation changes every minute. Anytime there's an incident or there's even a rumor of an incident, we start preparing in terms of, okay, if this happens, what do we do? What do we do with our team? I mean, the safety of our team is paramount as well. We want to make sure that Tom and all of our colleagues, their safety is our number one priority. And, and this is where training of our local counterparts is critical, because at the end of the day, our job is not to replace uh, the Ukrainian health workers that are working in Lviv or in Kyiv or, or the Romanian health workers. Our job is to empower them and give them the tools that they need to do the work themselves. And that helps us also with the contingencies in terms of how much are we needed beyond sending supplies and supporting them and training them. I mean, we're looking at the, the team that's in Ukraine. And with the war raging and, and, and going further west, what do we do with our team? Where do we evacuate? Mm -hmm. What happens if the supply roads uh, also are cut off? So we're putting a lot of those contingencies in place to make sure, first of all, that people continue to be able to provide medical services, even as the war rages on. We need to make sure that our team are safe, but also at the same time, the, the patients that we serve are also safe and getting the healthcare that they need. Uh, I mean, this is something that all the countries are working on, whether it's Poland or Romania or Moldova or Hungary, they're working on what happens if this escalates. Uh, and, and we're part of the coordination mechanism with other organizations because, because one organization cannot do it alone. I mean, over 1.5 million refugees in two weeks, who would have expected mm. that? Yet we pivoted, we provided support, we're sending additional teams, we're sending additional supplies to try to cope with it as much as possible. Well, we watch with just awe and admiration the sheer bravery of clinicians who are choosing to stay in Ukraine amid the bombings and the rocket fire. We had the, uh, the honor of speaking to a clinician from a polyclinic not long ago, and I think it will, we will always remember her uh, saying, we run, we hide, when we hear the alarms, we go back to work, we take care of our patients and the, the commitment is extraordinary, but we know they're also running out of basic medicines and food and water and fuel. Are you able to actually uh, get supplies into Ukraine? Believe it or not, yes. And it's it's a pretty complex mechanism to get supplies into what is essentially a, a war zone. Um, 
there's there's complexities by the availability of drivers for example um men men 18 to 60 can't leave the country so you know we're, we're having to work with the the government directly the ukrainian government and the embassies and the host country governments to move things across the border one of the ways that we're preparing some of these contingencies and one of the ways that we're making this uh, as flexible as possible is by having as many pathways into Ukraine as possible. Uh, so we don't just get one road or one one particular city. We, we're going to cover as many as we can and find every option and use them because if, if any particular uh, pathway gets closed, the supply chain doesn't end. We still can boost up by others. So one of our key, uh, our key partnerships is actually Children's Hospital in Lviv. And we're able to partner with a hospital in Krakow uh, in Poland and and move supplies from that hospital uh, into the other hospital in Lviv that needs them desperately. These hospitals and in, in places that aren't feeling direct impacts are receiving patients from the other hospitals. And it's not just the the war wounded. It's it's also people who need heart transplants. It's people with cancer, as I said before. So the, the supply chain is flowing and it always needs to be more because essentially the normal pathways that Ukraine gets its medicines have been cut off. So so we're creating a, a system with as many branches as possible to get things in country. You know, Robbie, uh, Tom was talking earlier about the sort of difficulty of providing direct, culturally uh, appropriate uh, support to, to families. But one of the force multipliers that have come out of the sort of COVID pandemic, if you will, has been telehealth interventions. Talk to us a little bit about how telehealth has been leveraged uh, by your organization or how have you seen it uh, scale up uh, during this crisis? Telehealth has become a critical component of what we do, right? We learned in the pandemic that if you can't reach people physically, you can reach them in other ways. I mean, the, the fact that we're having this uh, conversation uh, on Zoom is, a, is an example of what could be done. And we're exploring the same thing in Ukraine because certain areas we might not be able to send trainers or, or additional uh, uh, you know, doctors and nurses to work with them. But as long as they have connectivity, we can do it. We can continue to provide either the training component or even consultation with experts uh, in, in the region or even here in the US as long as there's a common language. This is something that's becoming more integrated into what we do rather than an afterthought, which mm-hmm. which uh, what telehealth used to be in the past. Now it's become integrated into what we do. When we look at options, we look at the telehealth option uh, as one of the critical components through which we can provide patient care, but also at the same time, we can provide advice and training to doctors and nurses on the ground. And, and those are some of the solutions that we look at in a situation like Ukraine. I mean, we don't know what roads are open today. We don't know you know, what uh, city or town is going to have connectivity uh, today or not. And telehealth helps us reach the patients, reach the providers without taking great risk and at a very reduced cost. I mean, it, it's much cheaper to do that than than uh, to do anything else. So it's become a component of what we do. And we're looking actually right now, we're looking at uh, different trainings that we could do based on demands from doctors and nurses in Ukraine, they said, can you help us with this? And we're looking at those components to see how we can do that from the US or from Poland or Romania Mm -hmm. and making sure that they still get the quality care that they need. I mean, Margaret, you you mentioned uh, the Ukrainian doctors and nurses that are staying behind. I mean, we owe it to them. Those are heroes that are staying behind. They're risking their lives to save others. We owe that to them. We owe it to them to find every single solution that we can to support them. And this is one of them, definitely. 
Well, Robbie and Tom, that is a great example of how people around the world can help. But we uh, want to make sure we give you an opportunity uh, because everybody watching this feels compelled to help in some way. Volunteer, amassing medical supplies. Tell the people viewing or listening to this, what's the best way for people to help in this cause right now? What do you need that people in the United States and around the country can do to help? Uh, you know, Project Hope, we're not just here for the acute phase of this. You know, as, as Robbie said, we, we get there, uh, we get there soon and we get there quickly. Uh, but we also recognize if the war ends right now, there are going to be years of work, not only um, in the host countries, but also to rebuild the health systems of Ukraine. Um, so so every every uh, every ounce of support is, is absolutely needed. It is all hands on deck for a crisis this size. People can visit us uh, at projecthope.org. Follow us on our social media. See what we're up to. Anything anybody can do to support is is greatly needed. And, Thank you. And Robbie, the Project Hope really uh, has so many other humanitarian crises that it's also addressing. We're still in a pandemic. There's ongoing refugee crisis in Syria and other hotspots. Just let our listeners know a little more about the scope of Project Hope. Uh, obviously, the tip of the spear right now is focused in on uh, the battles that are happening uh, in 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 Europe but you also have a much broader agenda that you're focused in on as well. The world didn't stop. The disease did not stop because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, uh, you know, people are still struggling all over the world. And for us at Project Hope, we're currently working in about 30 countries around the world, uh, in Africa and the Americas in Asia and in Europe. And we're focusing on different things, you know, infectious disease. I mean, we've, we're still dealing with the pandemic, as I said, uh, globally. Uh, and it's still raging in certain parts of the world. So this will continue to be of, uh, one of our focus. Focusing on maternal and child health. I mean, the pandemic sent us back decades when it comes to maternal mortality and infant mortality. So we're putting a lot of focus on that as well to make sure that women and children don't die unnecessarily because of lack of medicine or because of lack of vaccine or because of lack of training. Uh, looking at uh, non-communicable diseases. I mean, one of the main issues that's coming out of Ukraine is diabetes, cancer, is uh, chronic diseases that are not being treated. In addition to all the hotspots that we deal with uh, around the world, whether that's what's going on in Venezuela and, and the region or what's going on in certain parts of Africa and in, in Nigeria or in Ethiopia, the war in Ethiopia as well, this is something that we continue to work in. And we have our teams all over the world that are providing those services. And, and we urge everybody to go to projecthope.org, learn more about the organization, support us in whatever way you can. If you can donate, fantastic. If not, volunteer. And if we don't fall within what you're interested in, vet other organizations that you're interested in. The most important thing is for you to do something because the worst thing that we could do to Ukraine and to the world at large is to sit back and do nothing. And this is what we urge people, just do something to help. And if Project Hope, uh, if you like what we do, that's fantastic. If not, we're grateful for whatever support you give to other organizations as well. We've been speaking with Robbie Torbay, CEO of Project Hope, and Tom Cotter, Project Hope's Director of Emergency Response and Preparedness. Learn more about their efforts in the war in Ukraine and the refugee crisis by going to projecthope.org. Robbie, Tom, thank you so much for your humanitarian efforts, for your leadership in this work, and for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us.
At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Pfizer tweeted in February about the dangers of blood clots in veins, which are relatively common and affect as many as 900,000 Americans each year. A story shared on social media, however, misleadingly linked those public health reminders to the COVID-19 vaccines. Blood clotting in the deep veins or deep vein thrombosis is a serious and relatively common medical condition. Clots that form in the legs or pelvis can also travel to the lungs and block blood flow. That's known as pulmonary embolism, which is often lethal. Up to 900,000 people in the U.S. each year are affected by these conditions, and as many as 100,000 die, according to the CDC. Half of blood clots occur after hospitalization or surgery. It also highlights the risk of being immobile for long periods of time. Some of these factors also can apply to athletes who get injured or who travel a lot. The CDC highlighted the risks in a Super Bowl-themed tweet, reminding the public that DVT can happen to anyone. Online posts, however, have misleadingly used the public health message to suggest that the COVID-19 vaccines, including the two mRNA vaccines, are a major cause of clotting. One COVID-19 vaccine authorized in the United States the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, can cause a very particular blood clotting problem, blood clotting combined with low levels of blood platelets. But it is extremely rare. The condition has not been linked to either of the mRNA vaccines, which account for the vast majority of doses administered in the U.S. No COVID-19 vaccine appears to cause blood clots generally, and the mRNA vaccines have not been associated with any kind of clotting problem. And in fact, evidence suggests COVID-19 vaccination prevents blood clots by protecting against COVID-19, which raises the risk of clotting. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Sub-Saharan Africa leads the world in maternal and infant deaths each year. An estimated 397,000 babies died at birth in that region in 2013, and some 550 mothers died per day as well. Most of the causes have to do with lack of access to medical care in these low-resource regions, and often the local midwives lack formal medical training to prepare them to conduct interventions in the event of a life-threatening event like a hemorrhage or an infection. We know that 90% of all the deaths that we see today could be prevented if the mother had had you know access to this you know really basic 
skilled care during the childbirth. Anna Frelin is CEO of the Maternity Foundation. Their organization has created an intervention for midwives living in low-resource areas if they just have access to a smartphone. It's called the Safe Delivery App, and it provides comprehensive training for midwives that teach them and guide them on what to do in the event of a birthing crisis. This is really a matter of building the skills of the health workers who are already out there and empower them to be able to better handle the emergencies that, you know, may occur during a childbirth, such as, you know, the woman starts bleeding or the the newborn is not breathing and so forth. So first and foremost, it's a matter of finding a way that we can reach the health workers and build their skills. Frelin says the real promise of the safe delivery application lies in its ability to provide ongoing obstetric and neonatal training so that local midwives can gain important clinical knowledge over time. The safe delivery app has been designed to be culturally relevant and easily understood, and it's received the United Nations approval for wider deployment. A low-cost, culturally sensitive mobile app that offers immediate guidance and assistance to midwives and health workers, the backbone of the healthcare system in low-resource areas, empowering them with ongoing support and knowledge that can improve birth outcomes. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.